The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Data gathering and trying to predict that person's risk and how we may resuscitate them, is endoscopy the right first answer or is a different test or a different procedure or diagnostic study required before endoscopy? Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call is based upon an article in the Annals of Internal Medicine from October 22, 2019, titled Management of Non-Variceal Upper Gastrointestinal Bleeding, Guideline Recommendations from the International Consensus Group. Joining me today on this podcast is Dr. Chad Bursky. Dr. Bursky did his residency and GI fellowship here at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. He's currently an assistant professor. He's the program director for the GI fellowship. He's the clinical director for the medical student gastrointestinal module, and he's a core clinical faculty member in our internal medicine residency program. He's a wonderful teacher and a wonderful clinician. Uh, we hope that you will enjoy this podcast. Chad, thanks for joining me. Uh, I was fascinated by the guidelines on upper GI bleeding because we see it so much in the hospital. But I was a little disappointed because of the lack of good quality data for most of the recommendations. As a gastroenterologist, how do you view this? Well, I think that, unfortunately, the data is the data, and so we have to deal with what we got. Um, When we don't have good quality data, we have to take what our expert opinions are and sort of work with the data we have. Is it fair to say that this guideline really is more of an expert opinion than what we technically would call a strong guideline based upon good randomized control data? I think the authors did as as good as they could on the data that was available. A lot of the recommendations were not high-quality recommendations. They did the best that they could with the data that was available. So um, you can interpret that however you feel, but I felt like they did a good job uh, with the data that was available. Great. Well, let's start with the first problem when the patient shows up in the emergency department or on the floor, and that's fluid resuscitation. So what do we know about fluid resuscitation and... Where do we really need expert opinion? And I guess the to frame this, do we use colloids or crystalloids? And if we use crystalloids, do we use balanced crystalloids versus normal saline? And how do we know to uh, slow down how fast we give fluids? Fair question. I think most of us have uh, trained in the era we use crystalloid. Uh, it's cheaper. It's more readily available. And the data that is out there doesn't show any mortality improvement when they compared crystalloid versus colloid. And so I think uh, we have all kind of hovered to the crystalloid resuscitation efforts. As far as colloid, when we talk about blood versus albumin, I think we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later when we talk about uh, transfusion goals or, or thresholds. But I think most of us probably uh, resuscitate with crystalloid. Now, whether you use normal saline or lactated ringers, the jury is out. And so I think people use what their personal preferences have been. Uh, I think 
for whatever reason, internal medicine faculty and fellows use normal saline, and a lot of our surgical colleagues use uh, lactated ringer. We do know in certain areas, particularly in pancreatitis, lactated ringer probably does a little bit better than uh, normal saline. So I personally have kind of transitioned my resuscitation to lactated ringers, but I don't know that we have a clear winner in, in that realm. Uh, everything I've read agrees with that last statement. I, I've also uh, switched over to using the balanced solution, which in adults is lactated ringers, when I'm doing serious fluid resuscitation. Because while the data are not perfect, at least they're trending in that direction, and I see, see no reason not to go that. When do we slow down? So someone comes in, is bleeding, their blood pressure's down. I've seen the mistake made of giving too much fluid. What do you tell people when you're consulting? I find adequate volume resuscitation very difficult to clearly know when to stop. It's a hard uh, threshold to, to manage. But the opposite of that is under-resuscitating leads, can lead to poor outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so I tell people to try to use any trick in their bag they have to determine adequate volume resuscitation. If that's uh, doing orthostasis or if that's heart rate driven or even in the era of ultrasound guided uh, help, you know, using ultrasound to sort of uh, assess revascularization or resuscitation is there. What do I personally use? I use all of the above. I use heart rate target. If they're on a beta blocker, that's probably not very helpful. I stand people up and do orthostatics at the bedside, and I try to uh, use hemodynamics the best I possibly can at the bedside. With the increased use of bedside ultrasound, I think that we may well be going towards that because it is so handy, and as more people become comfortable with it, it's actually fairly quick. We have colleagues that uh, carry their own ultrasound pen along with them that they hook up to their phones. Okay, now let's go to something that I think has really changed a lot over the last decade, and that's hemoglobin goals for transfusions. When I was a resident many, many years ago, you just gave a lot of blood and tried to get it above 10. But I don't think that's what we do it now. So as they describe in here, what is a reasonable hemoglobin goal when you're transfusing? And do you adjust in people who you think have significant cardiovascular disease? Thresholds for transfusion have changed, and I would um, support that. And I think that our targets for non-cardiovascular patients uh, clearly should be lower. And that's, uh, for most of us, are somewhere around 7 uh, hemoglobin and 21 hematocrit. Uh, some people would argue the 8 hemoglobin level. In a normal individual that doesn't have severe cardiovascular risk factors, um, I think a permissible lower level has improved mortality. And uh, that also includes patients that have cirrhosis and overtransfusions may actually uh, worsen their bleeding. However, I I pause just a little bit. And, um, you know, we have to remember that hemoglobins and hematocrits get diluted. And in somebody, you should always sort of remember, not all bleeding is created equal. And so people that are having hemorrhagic shock, you know, don't wait on a number to treat the patient. And so, you know, I, I think we all teach our house staff or clinically sort of recognize that overtransfusions can be harmful. But again, assessing the patient and recognizing that uh, not all bleeding is equal. And if somebody is having hemorrhagic shock, you need to treat the patient even though the number may not be equal, what your target is. This is where I put words in your mouth and then you can, you can either accept the words or not. If someone has had upper GI bleeding but doesn't appear to be having aggressive GI bleeding, 
having a goal of around eight is, or seven is very reasonable. If someone is actively bleeding, it makes it harder to decide, and you might be a little bit more aggressive giving the blood for hemodynamic reasons just as much as where you want the hemoglobin to end up. Yeah, I think that's a fair explanation of my thoughts. I agree with that. And I would never fault anyone for giving blood when they thought they were having hemorrhagic shock to the point where the output was more than the input. So I think, you know, recognizing that a number is just a number and the clinical uh, scenario should really dictate care in, in the acute setting when somebody's having a hemorrhagic shock. One of the things I really liked about this guideline is the focus on low-risk patients and the ability to avoid endoscopy in some of these patients. Could you talk a little bit about how you and your colleagues are approaching this to use predictive models and how do you separate the patients who really don't need endoscopy from the ones who do need it? And when they do need it, how quickly do they need it? So when you talk about the different scoring systems, um, you know, AIM-65 and Blatchford score, and I think the only predictive model of no endoscopy with some certainty is using the Blatchford score uh, when you have a score of zero. Um, unfortunately, I don't hardly ever see those patients. So if they do show up in clinic, uh, that's sort of one scenario. But the folks that come to the hospital very rarely have a score of zero. And if they do, a lot of time our ER takes care of them before they see us. But if somebody had a Blatchford score of zero, um, I would agree that endoscopy is probably not needed. Now, in people outside of, of that realm, I think then, you know, is the risk of endoscopy worth the benefit? Almost all the time that answer is usually yes, but that has to be individualized for what the comorbidities are for that person and what their bleeding intensity and risk factors may be. And so, although somebody is having melanoma, doesn't always equal endoscopy depending on comorbidities and the ongoing clinical situation, although most of the time that answer is probably yes. How do you decide this patient needs to be endoscoped tomorrow morning, I need to come in tonight? or we can delay it on a Saturday until Monday. Yeah. And those are the decisions I know that y'all are making all the time. Yeah. Uh, and uh, someone who takes care of the patient in the hospital, you know, we're frustrated because the patient's sitting there and we don't know why they're sitting there. Straighten me out. You know, when we looked at early endoscopy when, within six hours versus endoscopy within 24 hours, there was no uh, mortality differences. And so, you know, I think the idea that early endoscopy within six hours changes clinical outcomes is probably not statistically present when they studied it. The idea that length of stay could be shortened um, is probably a fair argument because there are certain people that definitely could get endoscopy and go home. Um, but those have to be weighed against the resources that are available. You know, not every hospital or institution has endoscopy and or gastroenterologists on staff 24 hours, seven days a week. And so, you know, the resources that are available at different institutions sometimes dictate when people get endoscopy. So at, a, at an institution like ours where they're available 24 hours, seven days a week, you know, what determines my need to go in in the middle of the night is going to be intensity of the bleeding, the patient's response to resuscitation, and their other clinical comorbidities or clinical competing factors. Although we know that data that says there's no difference between six hours and 24 hours, I think, again, has to be individualized to the person and the ongoing clinical scenario and how they're responding to resuscitation. So let me, let me extend this to the part that I find the most confusing in, in uh, this particular guideline. 
I'm assuming that the urgency for endoscopy is directly related to your belief that that you may be able to do some type of treatment during an endoscopy. Mm-hmm. So just knowing where they're bleeding without being able to interrupt the bleeding really doesn't do us any good. Why don't we go through the different types of bleedings and what is the state of the art in 2019 about managing bleeds? And why don't we, why don't we start with the esophagus and go to the stomach and, and then go to the duodenum? So in non-variceal bleeding, I think uh, if we start at the esophagus, uh, for variceal bleeding, we live in the realm of, of banding um, almost entirely. And when banding is not available, we then are looking for uh, shunting such as tips on a very rare occasion, sclerosins are used mm-hmm. when other options are not available. Let's go over the variceal bleeding, which fortunately I'm seeing less of than I did uh, back in the 70s when I was a resident. So someone comes in, we know they have cirrhosis, they have a major upper GI bleed, and the variceal bleeds I saw were not puny bleeds. These are big league bleeds. Do you go in and band during endoscopy? Yeah, so we would like to resuscitate them, and then our goal was within 12 hours do an endoscopy. Uh, obviously localize the bleeding if it is a varix to band it, and then post-management uh, therapy after that. And so we would use clinical clues to make us think that this is a high probability of of variceal bleeding to go down that road. Mm -hmm. There are other esophageal bleeds. I know I've had people with esophageal ulcers. I've had people with very severe uh, reflux esophagitis. Do they present differently, and how do you go about managing those? Yeah. Sometimes the the presentation may not vary dramatically from somebody with with bleeding from the stomach or the duodenum. It may just present as melana coffee ground emesis, uh, things like that. But the, the management of esophageal lesions varies depending on what that lesion is. Is it esophagitis that's affecting the whole esophagus? Is it a tumor that's affecting the esophagus? Is it a Mallory Weiss tear? Um, is it an ulcer? And so depending on what that etiology is, uh, we may target therapy differently. Some of it may be no endoscopic therapy for esophagitis and, and anti-acid you know uh, acid medicines, or if it's a a Mallory Weiss tear or an ulcer, you know, trying to put a clip or some mechanical device to it to, to stop the bleeding. Now we're down to the stomach and we're going to probably have ulcers, we're going to probably have gastric cancers, and then we're just going to have severe gastritis. Yeah. And then every now and then we uh, will have an artery that's just pumping. Endoscopically, we've uh, got a couple new tools that are available to us uh, for ulcers and malignant bleeding um, and and other non-malignant bleeding as well. But I guess the two new things that are out there um, are uh, something called over-the-scope clip, which is a larger clip that fits on the end of our scope that can uh, gather full thickness tissue, a much more mechanical device. And then there's a chemical hemospray that is available that is an inert material that uh, is sprayed uh, to a bleeding lesion to help coagulate it and stop it. And so those are sort of the two newer therapies that have uh, become available, plus our old therapies including mechanical clips that are go through the scope, coagulation uh, with either a heater probe or a bipolar device, and epinephrine injection, which is a temporizing measure. Any good date on this, or is this part of the art of gastroenterology? 
We do have some data, but I would say it's probably more of an art and very much individualized to what the endoscopist is comfortable with, um, has trained with, and what's available to them. A lot of institutions and facilities don't carry some of these devices, uh, and so it's going to be individualized to what's available to that endoscopist at that time and what they're comfortable with. Are there any studies that say that one strategy is better than another strategy? There are some studies that say that dual therapy with epinephrine in a the mechanical device or coagulation device is better than epinephrine alone. We don't have a lot of head-to-head competing trials of over-the-scope clips versus standardized clips. There's some small studies that may prove that over-the-scope clipping is better than standard clipping. Um, as far as our new uh, device with the hemospray, it's not a. Um, there tends to be more rebleeding uh, with that, uh, and not a complete sort of uh, coagulative or mechanical device. And so, kind of as you would expect, it, it may have a little bit more rebleeding associated with it. Some of those studies are coming out with a hemospray, but as of right now, the studies are a little bit limited. And I would assume that the duodenum is going to be similar to the stomach. Yes, sir. Pretty um, much the, what we just talked about is the same way that the esophagus is one area, and then once we get below the gastroesophageal junction, we have another area. Yeah. What about secondary prevention? Who needs a PPI? How long do they need a PPI? If we find that we do have H. pylori, if we just treat the H. pylori, at what point can we stop the PPI? Tough questions. So in someone that had has had upper GI bleed from an ulcer, uh, we would recommend PPI therapy for at least six to eight weeks and almost always uh, once a day PPI. Very rarely do we use BID dosing unless it's a severe bleed. My sort of rule of thumb is if I intervened on the lesion, so if it's an ulcer with a vessel or if it's a, um, a clot that I remove and then clip, if I intervened on it, I tend to do BID dosing. That tends to be, again, more of a personal recommendation than data-driven. That hasn't made the guidelines yet. This has just been your experience. My experience, yes. Sir. Okay. Yeah. So as far as post, uh, who, who may benefit from a prophylaxis PPI? People that um, sort of are at higher risk. So if you've had an upper GI bleed and you're going to be on an anticoagulant and you're over the age of 65, you may want to consider it. And uh, you're going to need a, a secondary reason such as steroids with an aspirin uh, or if you're going to be taking... Um, aspirin with a anticoagulation medicine that it may be worthwhile doing. Well, this has been great. Just to finish up, give me a short recommendation for emergency medicine physicians and hospitalists who get patients with upper GI bleeds of what a gastroenterologist expects when they get the call. I think the things that we can do that are meaningful and help Uh, change outcomes. I think resuscitation is sort of the primary aim the moment they hit the door to the moment uh, that we sort of figure out what's going on. As as crazy as this sounds, actually history and physical matters. And so uh, getting a history of what their risk factors of why they may be bleeding matters. You know, is the person at risk for a aortoenteric fistula? Is the person at risk from a recent surgery and an arterial enteric fistula? Uh, Those are the sort of things that we have to gather um, if they've not been in our institution from a history, if they've been in our institution history and data gathering. But, you know, resuscitation, data gathering, and trying to predict that person's particular risk and how we may resuscitate them. And then, you know, is endoscopy the right first answer or is a different test or a different procedure or um, uh, diagnostic study required before endoscopy? So just to summarize, because I think this is always very important for generalists when they're going to call subspecialists. We have a gentleman or a lady who's bleeding. This is their first bleed or this is a recurrent bleed. 
they have cirrhosis and it's a bright red blood or all we got is coffee grounds or all we have is melanin, blood pressure stable or the blood pressure uh, needs resuscitation and we're giving the patient lactated ringers of 200 cc's per hour. We need your opinion on what to do next. Does that sound about what... Uh, yeah, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. The Truly defining the color is helpful, uh, helps determine pace and briskness and helps localization. And um, how they're responding, how their hemodynamics are responding is helpful as far as resuscitation efforts. So I think that's spot on. Great. Thank you so much, Chad. All right. Thank you. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This interesting discussion of the recognition uh, and management of upper GI bleeding raises some interesting points. First is that while we have good clinical expertise on this subject, there are very few excellent randomized controlled trials from which to develop guidelines. Nonetheless, we talked a lot about the importance of fluid resuscitation discussed the advantages of different types of fluid resuscitation and when to use transfusions. We also stressed at the very end uh, the importance of collecting enough data to give to the gastroenterologist before we call in our consult on an upper GI bleed. I hope that this uh, discussion gives you a better idea of the thought process of a gastroenterologist uh, when you call them up about patients with upper GI bleeding. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.